I'm excited. Good evening. Good to be here to preach God's word to you and share with you. I know it's been a while since last we met. I've been up here. I teach the teenagers primarily. They have to hear me day after day after day. I'm so sorry, you guys, but you have to hear me again. So it's okay. They'll be fine. But I wanted to talk with you tonight something that the Lord has really laid on my heart, honestly. It is something that, quite frankly, is, for many, could be considered a difficult subject to go over, primarily because it's a topic that's difficult to define. But I think it needs to be discussed. I think it needs to be talked about. I think it needs to be seen in God's word. In recent times, you've probably heard a word used quite frequently in our modern vernacular, in our lexicon, and that is the word anxiety. The problem is with the word anxiety is it's a term, it's a word, it's a concept that's often used flippantly. People say, oh, my word, I went to Starbucks, and they ran out of salted caramel, and I had so much anxiety. I was just, I flipped out. You know, how many times have you heard that? Yeah. It's like, I went to Walmart, and this lady yelled, and I just had PTSD. It reminded me of my mom. It's like, oh, I just, yeah, how many, post, PTSD stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. It's a serious term. It's a serious word. And so is anxiety. The problem is we've used it so much, it kind of loses its meaning, doesn't it? But it's a serious thing. It's a real thing. The problem is it's a, it's a modern word, or we think it's a modern word, but it's actually a very ancient problem. You know, Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, sometimes I think about this. We imagine sin entering into their lives, pain, separation, loneliness, uncertainty, right? So many things were death itself introduced when they were separated from God. But what about the sensation of fear? Imagine that. Never experiencing fear your whole life, and all of a sudden, it wrought in your heart. Fear removed their privilege from God. Fear made them forget their place with God. And fear made them lose their peace in God. That's how destructive this force really is. There's a lot of words. There's afraid, fear, terror. You know, these words are all interchangeable. What about anxiety? Someone once said that being afraid is a single point of despair. Sarah and I were driving last night with Haley. She loves on Center Street, you know, the Central Street, those roundabouts. And there's that new roundabout, Confusion Corner, I like to call it. It's two lanes. If you've driven it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's pitch black, freezing cold. And there's this lady who came by with a hoodie on, I assume was a human being, and was just hunched over, walking right in the middle of the roundabout. Not in the crosswalk, not in the grass, not in the middle of the roundabout. And I went, ah! <laughs> and Haley, like, she, she always grabs the car seat. She goes, ah, <laughs> whenever daddy has to do evasive maneuvers, which I never have to do, by the way. But I had to do there. That is being afraid. That's a single point of, of despair. Like, ah, I thought I hit this lady. I didn't, by the way. So everything's fine. Someone once said, afraid is a single point of despair, but anxiety is a sustained period of dread. One is a point in time. Another is prolonged trepidation. The issue is, we tend to do one of two things. We either dismiss those who are afflicted by it. You know, they got the jitters. Now, they're just a nervous fellow. They just need to get over it. They just need to stop. Stop being so anxious. Just smack them around a little bit. Okay, now you should be fine. And we kind of dismiss it. Oh, they have anxiety. Because we use it so often, that term. And on the other end, that word, anxiety, allows them to be overcome, overwhelmed, and overtake their entire life. 
They can't get out of bed because of their anxiety. I can't go to work. I can't love my family. I can't walk with God. I can't come to church. I can't fellowship. I can't enjoy God's blessings. I can't live the life God has called me to do because of my anxiety. Both extremes, and really all of us, have a responsibility to fight against this thorn in the flesh. One of dad's favorite preachers is Adrian Burden, and he said, once stress happens when you try to pull your expectations and your reality together, but anxiety happens when you turn on your reality and you only focus on your expectations. Anxiety is described by one as a hyper alertness. It's a heightened sense of the desperation of our reality. But really, if you want the true definition, we can stop with all this garble. If you want the real definition, both described by the Bible and by most people, basically anxiety is a realization at an extreme level that you are not in control. Now you may say, well, well, Andy, hold on a sec, take the glasses off. Now, Now, Andy, hold on. I'm not a controlling person. I'm chill. We live in Florida. We're on island time. I'm not a controlling person. And you know, that may be true. That's great. But that's not what we're talking about. When we talk about I'm not a controlling person, we usually mean that toward other people. Like, oh, they're so controlling because they're bossy with this person, this person, this person, right? But we're not talking about other people. We're talking about ourselves. And everyone, literally everyone, wants some, if not all, the control of their own life. And anxiety, again, comes when your expectations don't reflect your reality. And I believe, personally, a perfect model of this is King David. You talk about a man who both lived in, around, and overcame fear over and over again. You know, Goliath was just the beginning. That was the beginning of his story, if only he knew. And it's no accident that David is, without a doubt, in my mind, the one person in all the scriptures who talked the most about fear and anxiety. But why so much on this one subject? Why are we even talking about it tonight? Because it matters. Because it really matters. It's not an accident that God has said more than anything else to fear not. And in our life, we are always going to have stress. And let me just say that caveat. If you want to live a stress-free life, that's a book that's been sold in Barnes & Noble by Joel Osteen. You can buy it for $12.95. I looked at it. That's, that's a really expensive book. And it's wrong. You will never have a stress-free life. If anyone promises you that, they're either dead or they're lying. So one or the other. You're going to have stress. And you're going to have situations in your life that cause you to be weary and strained. That's just the world we live in. But just like so many aspects of this world that we live in, those things can go to extreme levels. And Satan knows that as well. It's been very well documented how much mental strain is caused by fear and trepidation, but also there's incredible physical implications for someone who is absolutely overwhelmed by fear and stress and anxiety. Stress itself, you think about when when Jesus Christ was in that garden, and the Bible says he was sweat drops of blood. That wasn't demonic opposition. That was because he was about to lay upon him the burden of the sin of every man, woman, and child in all creation. The stress, the burden affected him physically. So honestly, we recognize how serious a topic this is, but we're not supposed to just recognize it. We're supposed to realize something about it. We need to realize that God has an answer for it. And David realized, and we all must, that we cannot control certain things. So what are we supposed to do? 
two years ago in COVID, it was panic. That was the answer. Literally, I watched the news. What are you supposed to do? Well, you know, really the best thing to do is panic. So stay in your homes, but panic, but stay tuned. Don't turn that dial, right? Man, I sound old. Don't turn that dial. Some of you know what that means. Some of you young people, what dial? What are you talking about? But are we supposed to panic? No. But we're supposed to remember a few things. Three things to be exact. And I want you to apply these to your heart. The Lord has dealt with me with this, and I hope it's a blessing and an encouragement to you. Anxiety comes in our life when we realize, number one, that we are not in control of our situation. Of our situation. Look at verse 7 with me. Verse 7 of Psalm 27. It says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry, my voice have mercy upon me and answer me. When thou saidest, seek my face, my heart said unto thee, thy face, Lord, will I seek. Hide not thy face far from me. I love that. Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. You know, a lot of our anxiety comes when we are in circumstances that are frankly out of our control. Because your mind logically asks, what are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about this situation? And your anxiety answers back, I don't know. I don't have the answers. I don't know what I'm going to do. And that's perfectly reasonable. I mean, look at David. He had to face family members who mocked him, who scorned him, who assumed the worst about him. Look at David suddenly facing a decorated war hero. Look at David running as a fugitive in his own land, even though he was anointed by God. Most often our life and our testimony is not defined by the reality of things in our control, but rather we are truly defined by how we react to things that are out of our control. That's what makes us who we really are. Think about some of your favorite heroes. I don't care who they are. Think of your favorite heroes in the scriptures. How did they respond to what the situations were in their life? How did Joseph respond being sold as a slave? How did Joseph respond then being falsely accused as the same slave? How did Joseph respond being thrown unjustly in jail? How did Joseph respond when his brothers saw him again? How did he respond to his situation? How did Daniel, the Babylonian captive, respond to his situation? Or Christ, or the apostles? And on and on again, and on it goes. You think of this situation, when tragedy hits you, tragedy, heart-wrenching tragedy hits your life, a lot of times we naturally ask the question, what could I have done differently? How could I have avoided this or how could I have changed this situation? And whether we like it or not, the truth is, more than likely, there's nothing that we could have done because we are not in control. Not just tragedy, but when uncertainty hits, doubt, what happens? Does your mind automatically go to the place where you doubt God? Where you just assume that he will not be faithful to you? There were many great men and women in scriptures where when uncertainty hit, the first thing they did is say, God has forsaken us. God has forgotten us. Is that what we do? But not just uncertainty. What about desperation? When desperation hits your life, do you panic? Do you act out of whatever your mind or your body tells you to do? Or do you keep your body under subjection and submit yourself to an almighty God, even when things look the darkest? 
Listen, we're not deists here this evening. We do not believe that God set things in motions, wiped his hands, and said, oh, good luck. Good luck with life. Have fun. On the contrary, sometimes we go through the darkest valleys so that we learn to look up, to realize as we fail or we flail in our flesh that we are powerless to change our situation, but there is someone who is calling us, as David says here, to seek his face. Not to go to others, but to run to him. And simply look to God in prayer and say, God, I don't know. I don't know. There's nothing that I can do. God's answer will always be, I know. And I know that you don't. So seek my face. The problem is we're faced with seemingly impossible situations, a lot of times we either blame ourselves, we blame others, or we blame God. In a 100% totally joking manner, I often blame my wife for lots of things. She knows this. Please pray for her. She has a lot to put up with, with me at home. And I like to blame her for literally everything, obviously when it's not her fault. If something happens that are out of our controls, I'm like, this is your fault. You did this. And she's like, all the time. Teenagers do. I do the same with teenagers. I tell Ben, this is your fault. This is all your fault. Um, I'm just doing what Adam did in the garden. The woman thou gave us me, right? There's nothing wrong. I'm just kidding. But I do that all the time. This is your fault. This is clearly your fault. And there are situations that have come in our life that are out of our control. One of our favorite was one time I took Haley to the Brevard Zoo. She was just, just about to turn two years old. It's before she took a really bad turn and we could still go out a little bit. And do these kinds of things. So I took her to the Brevard Zoo and we saw, you know, spent $48 to see a gator, which I could have just spent nothing and went out there. But, you know, oh, but there's a rhino. So, oh, yeah, I guess that makes more of it. But Haley liked it. We saw the animals and all that kind of stuff. Well, you know how zoos are. It's long. It gets hot. And you get hungry. And the zoo knows this. So there's only one place you can get food. And it's a 45-minute wait for nachos in this little, you know, suspicious-looking booth that's $29 because it feeds the rainforests or whatever. So, you know, out we went, and so she had to feed Haley, and I got these nachos and cheese or whatever it was, and I said, okay, Sarah, listen, I'm going to lay these nachos down. You have one job. Watch the nachos. Don't worry about Haley. She's fine. Watch my nachos. Because I was unsatisfied. I was, as the Israelites, I said, you know, this is not enough. We perish with hunger. So I wanted to get more, because never enough. So I went into the, another 45-minute line, and so I lay these nachos down, and Sarah's feeding Haley. And all of a sudden, she noticed kind of the corner of her eye, there's a crow. Now, this is a zoo crow. They know what they're doing. They do this all day long. So he's sitting there looking and looking and at Sarah. And Sarah's like, what? And all of a sudden, the crow just swoops down like a black blur and grabs a chip in mid-flight and goes back up to her perch. So Sarah looked at her and she said, can we still eat that? <laughs> I said, is it okay? Maybe it's not a big deal, but here's the problem. Now the crow's friends know. And he signals all his buddies, the little Midianites, the plague of locusts, just to send. And so I'm in line. I can't see my family. And I just hear a little, ah. that was my wife. It's like, it's like, did something die? What was that? I think that's probably some animal. It's fine. But my wife screaming in terror. I couldn't hear. She was, I could, she was out of sight. So I come back after waiting another 30 minutes. And I'm like, this is taking too long. I'll just eat my nachos. At least I have my nachos. I walk back. And I see Sarah feeding Haley, and I see at least, at least two to th- three dozen crows just amassing towards something. It's like, man, whosoever food that is, they're going to have a bad day. Ha, ha, ha. And then as I look closer, I'm like, 
That's my food. <laughs> That's my nachos. And there's Sarah, of course, laughing hysterically at the predicament. And of course, my immediate reaction was, this is your fault. <laughs> you had one job. And she looked at me and said, hey, buddy, I was taking care of your daughter. How many wives have said that to your husbands? I was taking care of your, I see something. I was taking care of your kids. Thank you very much. Um, she, I was feeding your daughter. It's like, you should have been here. And even though I blamed Sarah, honestly, there was nothing that she could do. It was hopeless. She shook me. It's like, Andy, it's over. It's over. You're just going to have to starve today. But there was nothing she could do about that situation. But let me ask you a question. Realistically, think about it. What could David do about his situation? Hiding in a cave, completely forsaken, on the most wanted list, sought to death by Saul. I mean, really, think about it. What could David have done? Now, we all love to give our opinions, right? Well, he should have, you know, done this and done that. But really, honestly, if we were in his situation, there's nothing that we could do or he could have done. All he could do was verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. When thou say to seek my face, my heart said unto thee, thy face, Lord, will I seek. Some of you have seemingly impossible situations in your life. I don't know your situation, but God does. And I'm telling you right now, the biggest problem that everyone makes is people look to their situation and they don't look to the solution. Now, notice when David said in verse 8, I will seek thy face. It doesn't mean that God will just instantly, you know, fix your situation, resolve your situation, eliminate, erase, remove your situation. But he is the answer to your situation. Always. Which brings us to the second point. Not just that you can't control your situation, but also number two, and this is interesting, you cannot control your opposition. Look at verse 11. It says in verse 11, teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. Deliver me not over unto the will of mine enemies, for false witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. David had opposition. And you know, sometimes it's not our predicaments that cause us stress. It's people. It's always people. Um, one of my favorite factoids I've ever read, and there's been lots of studies, but there was one study done in the late 90s where they took 12 people and they wanted to subject them to different stimuli and things to see what would cause their blood pressure to rise and lower. And things that would calm them down, things that would excite them, things that would inspire fear, things that would inspire joy. And they showed them art, they would listen to music, they'd have pretty pictures flash on the screen, ah. And they wanted to see if there was a common thread amongst all 12. And all 12 participants had very different answers, right? But there was one conclusive study where unequivocally every single one of those test subjects, all 12, instantly felt a rise in stress, a rise in blood pressure, and everything else. And you know what it was? People. People. And it didn't matter who it was. If it was children, blood pressure would go up. Kids, I'm sorry, you stress your kids, your parents out. I hate to tell you. When you wake up in the morning, they're not happy to see you. They're stressed out. So that's just the way it is. Be at peace with it. I'm 37. My dad's the same way. So just the more you serve it now, the better off you'll be. Children stress their parents out. 
If it was a spouse, man, that'll lead to an argument. Frank, why were you stressed when I walked through the door? You can't lie to me. It's right there. It's science. Why do I stress you out? Why? No, I'm just kidding. But spouses, family members, in-laws. In-laws, you just die of a heart attack. They're listening right now. I love you guys. Um, it doesn't matter who the person was. If it was simply a human being, every single time, all 12 subjects, their blood pressure would rise. The stress would rise. Why? What about a dog or a cat? It would go down because pets are better. No, I'm just kidding. But it, their blood pressure, if it was a dog or a cat. But what's the point of all that? The point is people cause stress. Always. And here's the thing. Satan knows that too. Someone once said that when you reach new levels for Christ, there will also be new devils. New levels, new devils. When the battle's going well, do you realize that if, you're, if, if the battle is going well and Christ is advancing, the enemy isn't happy. And they're not passive. And they're going to take notice. If Christ is growing in your heart, then Satan will be growing in hatred for you. You honestly think that the enemy is just going to allow us to follow God and meet here at Beacon Baptist unabated and uninterrupted? See, because when you were lost, you were no concern to him. But now that you're God's child, that changes everything. Now you're on the map. Now you're on the most wanted list. Now you're public enemy number one. And not only have you ruined his plans for you, now you're starting to ruin his plans for everyone else. I was talking to my brother Rick the other day about two schools of thought when it comes to the devil, the two extremes that a lot of Christians make. And one mistake that a lot of preachers make is they're far too boastful or dismissive of the devil. They don't respect the danger and the threat that he is. Like, that devil, come on in here. I'm going right down the aisle. I'll give him a piece of my mind. Come on, devil, come on down. Let's see what you got. I'm like, uh, can we not? Can, can we? I'd rather not meet him. That's just me. I'd rather not, you know, just, that's the Lord's battle. I, I'm okay. I don't need to meet him. Let's not, let's not summon him, please. And some people are like, that devil's got no power here. I don't care. He can come right up here. He's called a roaring lion for a reason. The Bible says to be sober and to be vigilant because he is an adversary walking about seeking whom he may devour. It's a command. It's not a recommendation. But the other school of thought is too many people are gripped with fear when it comes to the devil. They see him everywhere. They think everything that happens, they're under satanic oppression, and they can't operate in joy or confidence or victory. Almost to absurd levels. I talked to someone once, and they basically said, you know, I hurt my leg playing basketball. No, it wasn't Brother Kevin, don't worry. Playing basketball, I was like, you know, devil's just, the, the devil attacked me. It's like, well, no, it's because you tried to dunk, and you're like four foot nine. That's why you hurt your leg. That's why Mr. Ham just smacked you. No, <laughs> so that's why, it's not because Satan attacked you. But they, they attribute him to everything, and they're constantly, I've seen people with a fear in their eyes of the concept of the devil. But listen, you're, you should be sober, but you should not be scared. You should be aware, but not afraid. And Satan isn't the only opposition. He often employs people to come to distract and discourage our walk with God. When I worked at McDonald's, one of my favorite things, which means one of the only things that I enjoyed working there was I was vehicularly challenged at the time, so either my mom or my dad would pick me up. And they love to see the shock on an innocent, sheltered homeschooler's face being, realizing how the world really is in the private sector. And I always had things to tell my mom and dad. Can you believe this happened today? I'm like, yeah, people are lost. Yeah, but, 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 oh, yeah, I guess you're right. And it was, it was culture shock, but it was good for me. And I learned a lot. And I had, a really, I had really good talks with my mom and dad 
during that time. It's like survival mode. It was wonderful. I remember one time, one of my favorite memories is dad picked me up one day from a long shift and I said, dad, I, I might quit. And he goes, why? I'm finally sick of eating all this poison. He's <laughs> like, no, I love that. <laughs> that's the best part. Popping in nuggets every hour. Um, that's fine. I'm good. It's the people. One person in particular, this guy was about twice my age. I was 16. And he called me the Christian crusader. That doesn't sound too bad. But this guy honestly had it out for me. I don't know what his problem was, but he took it upon himself that every shift that I work, and he seemed to work the same shift, that he would accost me and attack me and mock me. He would say things that he knew would make me blush or make me embarrassed. He would say blasphemous, sacrilegious things. I can still hear them. I can still remember the things that shocking things. And yes, of course, I told my manager, but you know how that, those things go. Well, what religion are you? Christian. Oh, well, good luck. Yeah, because this world does not care, right? They don't. When Christ is being blasphemed, they don't care. And that was the first time I learned that, too, as a six-year-old. They don't. So day after day, I dealt with this, but finally, like, Dad, I am. I quit. Like, this guy's driving me crazy. So Dad looked at me, and he said, Andy, let me ask you a question. Does this guy physically attack you? No. He just talks. He just talks. Yeah. Is he the reason you go to work every day? <laughs> no, absolutely not. I go for the nuggets and the Lord, but the nuggets. And then he said, well, if he's not the reason, then he's just noise. And what you're hearing is the roar of the lion. And it's just noise. I never forgot that. And he said, yes, the noise is annoying. Yes, the noise is loud. Yes, the noise is hurtful and distracting and can be discouraging, but at the end of the day, it's just noise. It's just the roar of the lion. Because yes, the roar of a lion is shocking and it's scary and it's supposed to paralyze you. But in the end, it's just noise. So what are you going to do with the noise of the enemy in your life? You know, David had a lot of opposition all around him, but it didn't stop him. It didn't worry him. And it didn't take David's eyes away from God. To put it plainly, we are not anxious over the opposition. We simply overcome the opposition through Jesus Christ. And honestly, think about it. Do you think David was happy that Saul was against him? He loved Saul. He would have died for Saul. And Saul was against him and his own family. Of course not. Of course he wasn't happy about it. And humanly speaking, again, what could David have realistically done in the face of this opposition? He couldn't reform them, he couldn't reason with them, and he could not remove them. So what do you do? You stop looking at the opposition, and you start looking at your position. You know, what is your position? Look at verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You know what your position is tonight? The Lord is is your light and your salvation. So why should you be afraid? You see, the key was that David wasn't just asking for power over his enemies. He was also asking for peace in the midst of his enemies. And that's what we all should ask for too. Because in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of terrible fear, he remembered who he was and what he had in the Lord. And he was confident. Confident in what? In verse 1, that in man you have nothing to fear.
which leads to the final lesson will be done tonight. Perhaps the most important of all, one that truly spoke to me. You can't control your situation. You can't control your opposition. But finally, number three, I want you to think about this. You cannot control your limitations. Look at verse 11 again. Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. Deliver me not over unto the will of mine enemies. For false witnesses are risen up against me, such as breathe out cruelty. I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. To me, this is one of the most beautiful truths in all of Scripture. Listen to this. He says, strengthen thy heart. You know what that implies? That implies that at one time, David's heart was weak. And that your heart can be weak. And my heart. Based on his own admission, King David said that he would have fallen, faltered, and fainted except for one little thing. Up until this point, what we've talked about, situation, opposition... Those are things that are done to us, right? Situations are done to us. Opposition are things done to us. But anxiety most often comes from the things that we do to ourselves, or rather, the things that we are unable to do for ourselves. A lot of the pressure and the stress and the anxiety that we endure in this life are purely self-inflicted because of the unrealistic expectations that our society that we, ourselves, or others put on us. So the critical question we all have to ask ourselves tonight is, whose standard are we living by? Whose priorities? Whose goals? Now listen, personal goals are good. Everyone's broken theirs by now for New Year's, I'm sure. All gone. Hey, speak for yourself, Mr. Andy. I'm great. I decided to eat more food this year. Well, that's good. That's a good goal. Me too. Me too. Personal goals are good. But you will always have one crucial caveat. One, the Lord Jesus offered himself to his father when he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. God knows us. He knows our limits. The Bible says he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. You know, Paul had goals. There are things he wanted to do. He wanted to go that way. God said, you're going that way. (laughs) Moses had plans and goals. It changed a lot. Joseph, so did every godly man and woman in this book, but all of them, all of them, and all of us have our limits. You ever think about what David was pondering in that cave? That he knew in his mind that God wanted him? No, no, no. God anointed him and promised him that he would be a king, and yet here he was in a cave, alone, helpless, and powerless. He didn't have supernatural strength like Samson. He didn't have a chosen army like Gideon was going to be Avengers and all these people are going to pop up on your left and just defeat Saul. No. He didn't have an endless supply of miracles like Moses. He was utterly powerless in the face of King Saul and his regime. But guess what? He was also powerless against a giant. He was also powerless against a lion and a bear. And yet, God delivered him out of it all.
It wouldn't be a stretch of the imagination during those days where David was alone that he remembered in the face of great opposition all the other times that God has been faithful to him and delivered him. Now, David did not find confidence, strength, or hope in his own abilities or accomplishments. He was like, well, I beat Goliath, so, oh, man, that's going to keep me for a while, right? No. The moment Goliath was done, on to the next trial. He didn't find confidence in the things that he had accomplished. In fact, every time that God gave David an incredible victory, oftentimes he would be presented immediately right after another trial to remind him that everything David rejoiced in was not brought about because of David's power, but because of God's provision to him. David admitted in these few words that on his own, he absolutely would have failed and fallen apart in his fears and his anxiety, but he saw something greater than himself. He saw the goodness of God. And by the way, notice that he says here in verse 13, I had fainted unless I had believed to see. This is a beautiful expression. You know what this means? This means it was a choice. He could have chosen to see his situation. It's hopeless. He could have chosen to see his opposition. I'm powerless. He could have chosen to see his own limitations. But instead, he chose to see God's boundless goodness to him. He didn't find satisfaction in the things that he could or could not do, but rather in the things that God had already done for him and through him. So again, I ask a question. Are you at peace with the limitations that God has placed in your life? We all have them. Or is it a source of great anxiety? What expectations have you placed on yourself that God never did? Someone once said, start where you are, use what you have, do what you can, and leave the rest to him. You may never fulfill the expectations of your friends, your peers, Your boss, boy, that's true of me. I'll never fulfill the expectations of my boss. That is for short. Love you, Dad. Your family, also Dad. Or even yourself. But that's not why you're here. And do you realize, by the way, that your lofty expectations can actually be a limitation in your life? Well, how can that be? Mr. Andy, I got big plans. Big plans. Mr. Rodden comes up to me all the time. Andy, I got plans. I got big plans. He knows what I'm talking about. We got big plans. How can that be a limitation? Because you're not limiting yourself, you're limiting what God has planned for you, despite your limitations. Time and time again, God brought David to the place where he could do nothing on his own, nothing. And with that realization, that wasn't meant, by the way, to serve as a punishment to David. Actually, it was a blessing to release David from the fears and the anxieties that would hold him back from fully trusting God with his whole heart and all of his life. I'm going to have something on the screen. I want you to read it. I want you to see it. Psalm 61. David says, Hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That is the words of a man who learns to overcome his limitations only through God. Another one, Psalm 73, verse 24 says, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth. 
but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is a man who learned that his limitations will not stop him from following God. As I mentioned in the announcements and dad mentioned this morning, uh, brother Joseph Nasili went home to be with the Lord a few days ago. Actually, it's Captain Joe. He likes to be called because he was a captain. And brother Remo, when I visited him, he wanted me to tell you, he's like, when you see brother Remo, I want you to go like this and say, Joseph Nasili says hello. So, Italian man through and through. So we got to stick together. And Captain Joe, which he corrected me, it's Captain Joe. I'm like, oh, yes, sir, <laughs> when I visited him. And Kevin will tell you as well. He looked like a picture of health. Sharp as a tech, intelligent, kind, thoughtful, funny, but debilitated, crippled, and soon to be with the Lord. And as he recounted his amazing life, this, this guy was a captain on some of the m- m- largest cruise liners that have ever sailed the seven seas, Carnival and others. He built his home and lived in Mexico for 25, 30 years. He sailed around the whole world on a sailboat with his wife, Suzanne, and then he wrote over seven books purely on navigating the waters in the Atlantic Ocean. This guy lived an amazing life in the Lord. And I look at him now, and in my youthful immaturity, I looked at him and I said the wrong thing. I said, Captain Joe, I'm so sorry that this has happened to you. And with mercy... And with kindness, he looked at me and said, Andy, I don't want you to ever apologize again for where I am now because God has blessed me with an amazing life. And it doesn't bother me how I am now because it doesn't bother God. He loves me anyway. Well, boy, that convicted me. I'm like, I'm the one supposed to be encouraging you today, sir. But has that ever happened? Have you ever visited someone in the hospital and you walk away? convicted, you walk away. Like, I thought I was supposed to help you. You just preach it. Okay. It's always a confusing, wonderful experience, isn't it? That's what happens with a man or a woman who is believed to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. And when I left, I, I prayed with him. And with tears in his eyes, I embraced him. And it was a wonderful time. And I said again, we're here for you. And I, and I know I'm not supposed to say I'm sorry, but my heart is burdened for you. I said, Andy, don't ever be upset because I'm not. I can never be upset because God has been so good to me. And he said, now get out of here. <laughs> he literally did. He said, now get out. He said, get out of here. And I said, aye, aye, captain. And he saluted me back. And I look forward to saluting him again in glory one day. You want to know the secret to overcoming anxiety? It's not a secret. It's laid out for us. Believe to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Our fears, our answer to all our fears all come for what we choose to see. You ever ever notice in scripture that there are rare and incredible moments when God himself is speaking to a man or woman and he demands for them to repeat what they see? Do you ever notice that? What do you see in your hand, Moses? What do you see? I see a hopeless situation. I see my people enslaved in Egypt and I'm here 40 years as a shepherd, no hope, no power, no answers, and I'm still burdened for my people. That's what I see. Well, what's in your hand? That's a shepherd's rod. Not to me. Throw it down. Let me see, let me show you what I can do. What do you see, servant of Elisha? I see unbeatable opposition. I see myself about to die in about two minutes. 
God says, not to me. Why don't you look up? God opened his eyes, and he saw the answer to that opposition. To Amos, who was aware of his limitations, Amos said, I am not a prophet, neither my father's a prophet. I'm a nobody. I'm a fruit picker. I am a burger flipper at McDonald's. Amen. That is who Amos was. God said, not to me. That's not what I see. To David, to Daniel, to Jeremiah, to Ezekiel, Christ even asked of his disciples, what do you see? He saw fields right to harvest. He saw fishermen who were about to turn the world upside down. But probably the most powerful of all, a humble prophet who was going through the darkest days of his life was asked, what do you see? And Isaiah said, I see the Lord high and lifted up. Not a God who's pacing the floor. Not a God who's wringing his hands, sitting on the throne. I'm going to say this and I'll be done. I told a dear friend recently that one of the greatest trials that you will ever go through in this life is simply waiting. Waiting for an answer to prayer. Waiting for an opportunity to arrive. Waiting for a situation to change, for opposition to end, or even to overcome a limitation. Whatever it is, most of our life is spent waiting on God. Because true faith, true strength, True gratitude comes from waiting on him. The problem is with that word is it's been ruined because of Disney World and the DMV and so many other things in our life. When we think waiting, we think we're waiting for our number to be called number 77, number 70. You're number 379. You're like, oh, no, please. And when we think waiting, we think we're supposed to just be passively sitting there doing nothing, stewing in our anxiety, in our despair, in our regret. But this word in verse 14, wait on the Lord, this word in Hebrew means to wrap yourself around something or someone. In other words, you're not just sitting there in your weakness and your limitation and your bad situation waiting for God to come around and just fix it. No, waiting on God is actually doing something. And that is to wrap yourself around the one who has the answer. Because guess what? You're not waiting for him to come to you because he's already there. He's standing right next to you saying, wrap your arms around me. He's guiding you, moving you, blessing you, strengthening you, even in the times where you don't see it. And when you are waiting, the Bible says here that you are being strengthened. That word strengthened, what David is saying, means not that you'll be like, Mr. Muscleman. It means that he sets your feet on solid ground. So the final picture is God is saying in his incredible word is, as a child, put your arms around me and I will grab you and not let go and I will set your feet on solid ground. And he says it, by the way, twice. Wait. I say on the Lord. Confidence, relief, peace, and strength comes when we wrap ourselves around the one who is truly strong. I don't know what is burdening your heart tonight. None of us in this room can really know the heavy burden that we bear. But one thing is for certain. We all have the same answer because we all wait on the same God. Every single one of us who's drawing breath tonight has been visited or perhaps even tormented with fear, with anxiety, but there's always good news for the child of God. 
The reason why God tells us to fear not is because he's always and already provided an answer for you. He has an answer to your impossible situation. He has an answer to your imposing opposition. And he has an answer to your imperfect limitations. And it is, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Is there a heart or bound by sorrow? Is there a life weighed down by care? Come to the cross, each burden bearing, all your anxiety. Leave it there. Come at once, delay no longer. Heed his entreaty, kind and sweet. You need not fear a disappointment. You shall find peace at the mercy seat. All your anxiety, all your care, bring to the mercy seat. Leave it there. Never a burden he cannot bear. Never a friend like Jesus. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.